I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this show as a free educational resource and you'd like to show your support, you can do so via Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding service that allows independent creators to get their work out into the world. If you donate as little as $1 a month, that's less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to members-only episodes. In the coming weeks, I'll also be adding other prizes like Words for Granted mugs, maybe some Words for Granted pins. I haven't quite gotten all of the merch stuff together yet, but mark my words, it's coming soon. So, just go to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted to find out more. You can also find a link to my Patreon account on my website, wordsforgranted.com. Thanks to Marcia for her recent contribution. And while I'm here thanking people, I'd like to thank Mariana for suggesting today's topic. Also, I'd like to let you know that I recently was a guest on the Endless Knot podcast hosted by my friends Avon and Mark. We discuss things such as how technology affects language, the linguistic oddities of the King James Bible, how I first got interested in etymology, and tons of other things. If you're a longtime listener of this show, then I definitely recommend checking out that episode. Again, that's the Endless Knot podcast. Okay, let's get on to today's episode. The first time I encountered the word filibuster was in a high school politics class. Like most 14-year-olds, my first impression of filibuster was, that's a weird-sounding word. I probably memorized its definition five minutes before I had to take a stupid multiple-choice test and then completely forgot what it meant five minutes after taking said test. I never was a fan of those things. Anyway, after graduating high school and actually learning a thing or two about politics. No offense, Mr. D, wherever you are. Somewhere along the way, I relearned the meaning of filibuster and still thought it was a weird-sounding word. However, some of you listening to this show may be completely uninterested in politics and, as a result, unfamiliar with some political vocabulary such as filibuster. It's not exactly the topic of everyday conversations. So, just to play it safe, I want to take a second to explicitly define what filibuster means so everyone can get on the same page. According to the dictionary, a filibuster is the use of extreme dilatory tactics that delay or prevent an action in a legislative assembly. The word can be used as either a noun or a verb. In more relatable terms, a filibuster is when congressmen or women make really, really, really long speeches in order to delay or even derail the passing of an unwanted congressional bill. These speeches may dwell on minor technicalities, indulge in irrelevant issues, and so on and so forth. A senator will initiate a filibuster if he or she doesn't have enough votes to defeat the passing of the undesired bill. Basically, filibustering is a glorified term for talking a bill to death. In the United States, the record for the longest filibuster speech is held by J. Storm Thurmond, who filibustered for 24 hours and 18 minutes against the Civil Rights Act in 1957. Although the act of filibustering isn't uniquely American, the word itself first appeared in American English 
and is mostly used in the context of American politics. As one might expect, the emergence of the word is tied to American history, and like the etymologies of candidate and inauguration, which we talked about in previous episodes, the ultimate etymology of filibuster originally had nothing to do with politics. But unlike candidate and inauguration, filibuster does not come from a Latin root word. It comes from ribute, a Dutch word meaning pirate or plunderer. My Dutch-speaking friend tells me I'm pronouncing this correctly, so if I'm not, you can blame him. The word vributer is a compound containing two parts, vri, meaning free, and boot, meaning booty. That's booty as in stolen goods, not bootylicious. Vributer also contains the suffix er, spelled er. Like the English suffix er, the Dutch suffix er is used to indicate agency, as in someone who does something. A player is someone who plays, and a surfer is someone who surfs. So a rebooter, after translation, is someone who plunders for booty and then sells it freely to whoever he wants. Both the meaning and the construction of the word rebooter resemble the English word freebooter, and that's because they're cognate, making freebooter cognate with filibuster as well. By definition, a freebooter is one who unlawfully plunders. So the connection between vribooter and freebooter is pretty transparent, but the connection between vribooter and filibuster is much more obscure. How did the pronunciation of filibuster get so jumbled, and how did it acquire its political sense? Let's tackle these questions one at a time. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word fleabooter first appears in English during the 16th century, and it's a direct borrowing of the Dutch word vrebooter. Over the next century, the pronunciation of the L in fleabooter morphed into an R, thus producing the modern English word freebooter. In the 18th century, English then acquired flibustier, the French borrowing of vrebooter. From what I can tell, Freebooter and flibustier existed simultaneously in English, and both meant the same thing. It's not exactly clear why English adopted a French borrowing of a Dutch word that it had already borrowed from Dutch itself, but it's not really a question worth pursuing because it doesn't impact today's overall story. The only thing you need to know about flibustier is that within a century of its appearance, it fell out of usage and was replaced by filibustero the Spanish borrowing of this Dutch word, rebooter. This Spanish form of the word changed the initial fli sound to a fil sound, presumably because this made it easier for native Spanish speakers to pronounce. English modified filibustero to filibuster, thus arriving at the pronunciation familiar to us today. However, at this point, the meaning of the Spanish-derived filibuster was still closely related to its pre-existing English cognate, freebooter. Before we can look at why filibuster was applied to the obstruction of legislation, we have to look more closely at why this Spanish form of the word caught on. Actually, the answer to this preliminary question is the main narrative of today's story. 
During the mid-19th century, a handful of ambitious Americans began organizing illegal military invasions of Spanish-speaking territories in Central America and the West Indies. These invasions were illegal because, A, they violated the Neutrality Act of 1794, which stated that no American citizen could wage war against a country with which the United States was at peace, and B, they were organized outside of the authority of the United States military. In other words, this was a time in history when ordinary American citizens were joining together to invade foreign countries to ignite revolutions or coups, usually with self-serving political interests. Ostensibly, the Spanish-speaking inhabitants of these territories called these invasive Americans filibusteros, which was then anglicized, perhaps by the filibusteros themselves, as filibusters. The fact that the filibusteros did not name themselves is significant. If they had, they probably would have chosen a name with a higher public approval rating than a Spanish word for pirate. I'd like to parenthetically add that in its most fundamental sense, a pirate is not necessarily someone who has a wooden leg, wears an eye patch, and speaks in a funny accent, but rather someone who steals property without permission. Think of the modern term music pirating as it relates to obtaining music for free on the internet. The verb to pirate basically means to steal. Anyway, the point of the matter is that the Spanish etymology of filibuster indicates how the Spanish-speaking colonial rulers of these Latin American territories felt about these unauthorized invasions. However, in some instances, native populations actually took sides with American filibusters who sought to overthrow Spanish colonial rule because they believed it would lead to better lives. But if it sounds like filibusters were out there risking their lives and fighting passionately for human rights, well, they weren't. They were motivated by their own political and economic gains. To give you a better picture of what the so-called American filibuster movement looked like, I want to give a brief overview of two of the most famous filibuster leaders from this period, Narciso Lopez and William Walker. Now, we're going to get away from linguistics and talk about straight-up history for a few minutes, so if that sounds interesting to you, great, and if not, try to stick it out with us. This historical context is going to give you a much deeper understanding of the eventual application of the term filibuster to the congressional tactic of delaying unwanted bills. So, Narciso Lopez. Narciso Lopez was a Venezuelan-born Cuban of continental Spanish descent. In 1848, after becoming involved in an anti-Spanish faction that sought to overthrow Spanish colonial rule in Cuba, Lopez fled to the United States in order to avoid arrest and persecution by Spanish authorities. Almost immediately after he reached the U.S., he began assembling an army of ordinary American citizens to join an expedition to liberate Cuba from Spanish rule and claim it as a U.S. territory. Now, let's pause for a second here. If Narciso Lopez was a Spaniard himself, a wealthy and privileged one at that, why would he be motivated to overthrow Spanish rule in Cuba and pass its political reins over to the United States? Well, like many wealthy colonial landowners living in the Spanish-American territories, Lopez's wealth depended on slavery. 
After the abolishment of slavery in the British colonies during the 1840s, Lopez feared that the Spanish colonies would soon follow in suit. However, in the United States, the slave economy was thriving, particularly in the South. So in an attempt to preserve the institution of slavery in Cuba, like I already said, Lopez rallied an army of American citizens and marched them into Cuba to claim it as U.S. territory. Even though Lopez acted unconstitutionally, he managed to win the support of a considerable number of both ordinary and influential Americans. Apparently, Robert E. Lee, eventual commander of the Confederate Army, almost signed onto Lopez's bandwagon, but ultimately declined the offer. I suppose the next question you have is, why was Lopez so successful in his efforts to rally Americans to liberate Cuba from Spain? In short, it appealed to many Americans' appetite for territorial expansion, which, at this point in history, was absolutely ravenous. It also appealed to the doctrine of manifest destiny, a 19th century belief that the territorial and ideological expansion of the United States was not only inevitable, but justified. When Lopez and his army of filibusters set out on their first expedition to Cuba in 1850, Contrary to their expectations, they failed to rally local support against the colonial Spanish rule. Quickly outnumbered, Lopez retreated to Key West, then returned on another filibustering expedition a year later. Yet again, he and his army were outnumbered. This time, Lopez and many of the Americans who fought in his army were captured and executed. The actions of Lopez and his army of filibusters were condemned as un-American by then-President Millard Fillmore. While the support of filibustering began to fade in the northern states, its support in the southern states was just beginning. Lopez's audacity, that's audacity in big scare quotes, by the way, inspired a whole new generation of American filibusters, the most significant of whom was William Walker. Born in Nashville, Tennessee in 1824, Walker worked in law, medicine, and journalism before deciding to organize several separate military expeditions into Latin America with the intention of establishing English-speaking colonies under his own personal political control. Unlike Lopez's failed attempts in Cuba, Walker's filibustering in Nicaragua actually resulted in an overthrow of the local government and his installation as president in 1855. Due to the introduction of exploitative policies such as the reinstating of slavery, Central American forces soon rebelled against him and sent him back to America. Upon his return home, public opinion regarding Walker's actions were mixed, but that didn't stop him from returning to Central America a few years later in 1860. Though he didn't engage in another filibuster expedition, the British government viewed Walker's presence as a threat to its own colonial interests in the area. Consequently, British troops captured him and passed him off to Honduran authorities who would execute him. One year later, the Civil War began, thus bringing the era of American filibustering to an end. Okay, hopefully you found that contextual information interesting. I don't know about you, but I myself knew very little about American filibustering before researching this episode. Now, let's turn to the modern sense of filibuster, as in, an action such as a prolonged speech that obstructs progress in a legislative assembly. Basically, this usage is a metaphorical application of the military sense of the word that we've been discussing. 
it implies that filibustering is a form of political piracy against the government by the government itself. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the U.S. government first used the term in the context of legislation in 1865, just a few years after the final filibustering campaigns of William Walker. Although Narcisa Lopez and William Walker are obscure historical figures to us today, during their lifetimes, their names made news headlines, and as a consequence, so did the original sense of the word filibuster. The point here is that most Americans would have known what this Spanish loanword literally meant. Nowadays, filibuster is no longer used to describe a person. It describes a procedure and also the verb associated with that procedure. If you were to describe a person who filibusters today, you might call him or her a filibusterer. However, this is etymologically redundant. Recall that the ER ending of filibuster actually derives from a Dutch suffix which indicates agency, as in someone who does something. Like I mentioned earlier, it's cognate with the English suffix ER, which means the same thing. A player plays, a swimmer swims, and a filibuster... Well, a filibuster doesn't filibust, and that's why the recognition of this ending as an actual suffix has eroded over time. Whereas the meaning of words such as player and swimmer are built upon pre-existing English verbs, play and swim, filibuster is not. As we all know, it derives from a Dutch compound comprising the roots vri and boot. When the U.S. government first used the term filibuster to describe the obstruction of legislation in the 1860s, it actually referred to what today we would call a filibusterer. In other words, a person who obstructs legislation. By the late 1880s, its meaning began to shift from a person who obstructs legislation to the obstruction of legislation itself, probably because the historical memory of people like Lopez and Walker, who were filibusters, was beginning to fade. Before we wrap up, I should mention that the concept of congressional filibustering predates the introduction of the actual word filibuster. Since 1806, the theoretical possibility of filibustering was legalized, but an actual filibuster was not held until the 1830s. However, it wasn't a common procedure back then, so it didn't really demand a specific term. If a filibuster occurred, that's using it in the modern sense, it might have simply been called a long, annoying speech. As these long, annoying speeches became more and more common as the century pressed on, they acquired an actual name which just so happened to be plucked from current events that were relevant at that particular point in history. If long, obstructive speeches in Congress hadn't become a popular practice until, say, 2015, rest assured they would not have been called filibusters because the era of filibustering is no longer a relevant socio-cultural reference. Maybe it would have been called trolling. Seriously. Okay, well, that's it for this one, guys. We'll be doing one more episode in this politically-themed mini-series, and it's going to be something special. I don't want to give too much away, so just keep your eyes peeled for it. Don't forget to follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. My Twitter username is at WordsForGranted, and I'm on Facebook as WordsForGranted. If you want to reach me directly, my email is wordsforgranted at gmail.com. 
If you love the show, please spread the word. And as always, I ask you to please leave a review on iTunes. Those iTunes reviews are the best way to get more people on board with the show. And as much as I hate to do this, I'm going to remind you one more time about contributing to the show via Patreon. My life has become extremely busy lately, but I want to keep episodes of this show coming out on a regular basis, and the best way to do that is by having you guys contribute something small to the show each month. All right, thanks for listening. I'll see you guys next time. Bye.